Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we come to you as our Father, knowing that you love us perfectly as, as sons and daughters, that we are brothers and sisters of one big family, that you provide for us and care for us and protect us and want the best for us, and that that is a reflection of what good fatherhood looks like. And so we pray for the, those who in Redemption Hill who have been given the privilege and responsibility as dads, and we pray that you would help them to, to have their hearts stirred in faith and that, they're, that they would be an example to their families in what it looks like to follow Christ, that you would fill them with your spirit to be gentle and patient and kind with their children, but also that they would be willing to discipline and lead their children and form them and, and help shape their character. We pray for the kids of Redemption Hill that they would never know a time that they don't know you and love you and that Christ will, um, will be their greatest hope for, throughout their lives. And so we thank you for the church family and that the church family gets to support our families. And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series in Romans chapter 8. We only have two sermons left in Romans 8 today and next week, and this one comes into a pretty well-known passage. And so if you have a Bible, turn it with me to Romans chapter 8. The verses will also be on the screen for you. We'll be in verses 28 to 30 today. And as we do, there's, this, this weekend is not just Father's Day, but also Friday was Juneteenth, commemorating June 19th, 1865. Now, if you don't know what Juneteenth is, just a re, it's worth doing some research. Pay attention, do some research, and learn about it, but a little bit of an overview. Almost three years after the Emancipation Proclamation, on June 18th of 1865, the Union Army General Gordon Granger arrived at Galveston Island in Texas with 2,000 federal troops to occupy Texas on behalf of the federal government. And the following day, standing on the balcony of Galveston's Ashton Villa, Granger read aloud the contents of General Order No. 3, announcing the total emancipation of those held as slaves, an estimated 250,000 people in Texas. So the Emancipation Proclamation was issued three years earlier, but on Juneteenth, almost three years later, the people who were enslaved in Texas finally experienced the freedom that they had been granted. And still, as we have seen in recent weeks, the stain of sin, of, sin, of race-based chattel slavery is deeply embedded in our nation and continues to have echoing effects. The institution of slavery was ended, but there are lingering effects of racial division, inequality, and injustice. And so in the midst of all of this, Juneteenth is a celebration of, of freedom and a celebration of, of the miracle of, of what happened in the freeing of the slaves, but also one that we look back at, lamenting the reality of our history. And to me, it is a reminder of the miracle of the black church. That the, that the black church was, is able to show us what joy looks like in the midst of suffering. 
what lament looks like that still leads you to dancing. That being in the worst of circumstances and not even being able to have the freedom to worship how you would like, but still believing that God is there, that he sees you, that the exodus is real, and that he can bring us freedom from chains. And so that's where we get the anthemic hymn, the, the black national anthem, lift every voice and sing, lift every voice and sing till earth and heaven ring, ring with the harmonies of liberty. Let our rejoicing rise high as the listening skies, let it resound loud as the rolling sea. Sing a song full of the, of, the, of the faith that the dark past has taught us. Sing a song full of the hope that the present has brought us. Facing the rising sun of our new day begun, let us march on till victory is won. Church, this is what hope in the midst of despair looks like. This is what, what hope in the midst of sorrow and suffering sounds like. If you're a Christian... This is a model of what it looks like to walk through life in a world that, as we saw last week, the world is broken, creation is groaning, longing for the day of its redemption. That we groan, not even knowing how to pray as we walk through this life. And so there's inspiration as we come to our text today, because what we see today is that whatever we face, whatever our circumstances are, all things work together for our good. And so in Romans chapter 8, this is what we read. And we know that for all those, or that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that they might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, it's fairly self-apparent what this section begins with, that all things work together for our good. So that's the big idea that we're going to look at in this text. You see in verse 29 that there's the word for, meaning that that's the, the verse 29 and 30 are an explanation of the declared statement in verse 28. And so the big theme is all things work together for our good. And then it goes into what is called the golden chain of saving faith. So that's what we will see today. Now, there's a contrast here that I want you to see as well. That in verse 26, if you remember, when we look back, it's talking about suffering, that all of creation is groaning, but we look ahead with hope and we have patience, and likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know how to pray as we ought. So we do not know how to pray, and in verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for our good. So Paul, in, in, in successive thoughts, talks about what we don't know. We don't know how to pray. We don't know how to even respond to God in the midst of suffering. And yet, he stands firmly saying, we know that whatever we're facing, whatever suffering we're in the midst of, that it's going to work out for your good. Now, how can those things be held together? So I did some work this week in preparing as I was looking at this passage. And I thought I would look at this word that is used here for we know and look at how it has been used so far in the text of the book of Romans. 
And so they're all going to hit your screen for you. You don't have to be flipping around, or if you'd like to, we'll walk through. So back in Romans chapter 2, Paul is talking about the irreligious and talking about idolatry and how people turn aside and worship the created things rather than the creator. And he says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. So here's something we know in Romans. He then in the next chapter in 3.19 says, now we also know, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. And so he's showing here, we know that God will hold the irreligious accountable, and we know that God will hold the religious accountable. And he's given us his law and his word so that every mouth is stopped up. So all people are accountable to God and will stand before God in judgment. That's things that we know in Romans. It doesn't stop there. In chapter 6, verse 9, he says, We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. And so we know that we're all going to face judgment, but now comes the good news of the gospel. Jesus has been raised from death to life, and so we know that death can no longer hold him down. These are facts that we know because the resurrection is a true event, something that that people witnessed with their eyes. In chapter 7, Paul talks about, it's this introspective chapter that we read through, and he says there, we know that the law is spiritual, so he's saying the law is good, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Later on in the same chapter, he says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So he's saying, what, can we, what do we know? We know everyone's going to face God in judgment, religious and irreligious. We know that for every one of us, that we want to do good things, but we can't. We are, there's a battle happening within us. And now when we get to chapter 8, we know that in verse 22, that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is something we know Scripture tells us, and our experience backs it up, that this world is broken and groaning, that things are not as they ought to be. And so it's only when we get to verse 26 of chapter 8 that we see in the midst of all of these things we know, the foundation of the gospel and that the need that we have because we are all under God's judgment, but the hope that we have because Christ has been raised from the dead, and now we get to, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of the brokenness of creation, Paul then says, but we don't know how to pray. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we don't know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and always in accordance with the will of God. And so we're uncertain about our own response, but there's bedrock truth in the gospel. And so now, in verse 28, it's with that same confidence that Paul says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. We know and can trust what God has accomplished. And the only uncertainty that comes is based on, on us. We don't know how to pray. And thank God that the Spirit intercedes for us in accordance with God's will. But, but this is an important reminder for us that we need to be reminded of all the time. Because when we read the Bible, most of us read it for ourselves. We want to get something out of it. We want, and have you ever played Bible, like Bible roulette, where you do this and you're like, God, I need a word. 
and you point and you say, if it please the king, let the royal order go out for him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes. And you think, that's it. I am being called to change the laws of this country. Let the word of the king go out and I am going to change the laws that have been written. And you go, okay. There might be a way for you to biblically arrive at that end point, depending on where your passions and giftedness lie and how God has led your path. That's not the way to get there. Because, but we read the Bible this way, and it's, it's when we always internalize and individualize the things that God's word has to say, we're looking for a personal word in the moment. And make no mistake, God's word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and it will divide soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and it will expose our own passions in our hearts. And God will speak to you directly through his word, by his spirit, and his spirit illuminates his word for us. Yes and Amen. But the Bible isn't primarily about us. The Bible is not primarily about you. It's not primarily about me. The Bible is about God. It's about who he is and what this world that he made and the people that reflect his image and likeness and the stories of what he has done and the unfaithfulness of his people and his people leaving him and abandoning him and cheating on him is the language of the prophets. But, but it is about his faithfulness when we are unfaithful. It is about his intervention when we are in despair. The Bible is about God. It's the good news about who he is and what he has done. And this is why we talked last week about the importance of understanding that the gospel is, a, we need to understand the narrative arc of the story and not leave anything out. That God created everything, that sin entered the picture through human rebellion and now reigns. That sin is not about individual mistakes. It is, it is an occupying power of a kingdom of darkness in God's good creation. And we are under that power, but God entered in in the person of Jesus Christ, earning our redemption through his sacrificial death and victorious resurrection. And we look ahead to the restoration of all things, the new heavens and the new earth. And not that this place goes away, but it is renewed and restored by Christ himself. And so if you're not a Christian, this is what Christianity is. That you can turn to Jesus and everything that we just walked through in Romans that we know, that we know that we are under God's judgment. But he has made a way, and our hope is that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him, and through him we have the same life. If you're a Christian, then this is the unshakable foundation of the knowledge that we call the gospel. And so that's what we bring in then when we understand what it says when it says that for those who love God, all things work together for good. We need to hear that because this verse is one of the classic ones for people to misinterpret. We do this all the time. So, I mean, like a real popular one is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. We read that and say, yes, I want to prosper. I don't want to be harmed. I want hope and a future. I am claiming that word for myself. And then you read the context and realize that God was writing to exiles in Babylon and he starts by saying, don't listen to false prophets that say you're getting out of this. You've got 70 years left. And that the people reading that letter would be dead before their children returned to the land. We have to read the context. This happens in Philippians 4 when we read, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Right? 
Like every young athlete claims that word and decides that they are going pro. And then they blow out ankles, hypothetically. <laughs> you know, but, but in the context, Paul is saying, I've learned to endure everything. I've been in plenty and I've been in want. And I can endure it all because it's Christ who gives me the strength. And that actually, if you read Paul and read the New Testament and read about Jesus, we come to learn that it's in plenty that we actually have to endure more because that's when our souls dry up. So, so we need to read it in context. In this verse, this idea of God, all things are going to work together for your good. We can hear that and, and we can think like, well, that means that any evil and suffering that I'm facing now is going to be reversed. And you know, you, we don't, this is like if you read the book of Job and, and don't just read about his suffering and everything that was taken and don't just read about all of his terrible friends that came around him, but, but you jump to the end and you're like, see, everything was restored by God. That's, that's going to happen in my life. That is not what this verse is promising. Or if we read this and say, and we understand that good means material wealth or comfort or physical well-being, that is not what it's saying. God's understanding of what is good for you may not always line up with your understanding of what is good for you. I have three children. This is an experience that as a father I experience all the time. That there are things that they want and that they think are good for them that I know are not. And sometimes as a parent you need to let a kid go after that. Like, you know, there are times of the year, like it's Halloween night, you're going to eat way more candy than you should. And then the next morning when you wake up and you've got a stomach ache, I go, well, like try, try some vegetables. Your system can't handle it. It's not good for you. This also doesn't mean that God causes all the evil and suffering in your life just to test you in order to shape something better in you. Sometimes evil happens because all of creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. There is, there is evil in this world. Sometimes it's the wickedness of other human beings against you. But what it does mean is that God will work in you and that in the end there are good things for you. And so that's what we see in the text. So there are two descriptions of the people who this is directed toward, right? That God will work all things together for good. For who? Well, we know that it's for those who love God, first, and second, for those who are called according to his purpose. That's the people that can count on all things working for their good in the end. And, and those, that's the same group of people. And so Paul is restating it in different ways. And again, the next two verses begin with the word for. It is, a, um, it, it is an explanation of what is God's purpose. What is the good that's going to happen? What is God's purpose that we're moving toward? Well, that's what verses 29 and 30 give us. That, that the, it's the great assurance we have in Christ that God's love and intention for us is that good will be accomplished in the end. And, and this is the freedom that we are given in Jesus. This shows us the heart of God and the work of God in us and anyone who calls on Christ as their Savior. And so theologians throughout history have called this the golden chain of our salvation. And there are five links to the chain. And they all stand together. Like a chain, none of them let go. There's, every one of these stands and, and, and every one of them is necessary. And so we're going to walk through those five together. First, God foreknew. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. We'll get to predestined. Don't freak out yet. God foreknew. But what does it mean that God foreknew? This is what it means that things are working out for good. This is God's purpose for those who love him is that he foreknew you. 
There's a couple of aspects to this, and some people try to debate them. I don't think we need to divide them. The first is that God knows everything. God's foreknowledge means that before the foundations of the world, before this place began, before the Spirit of God hovered over the waters of the deep, before breath was breathed into the nostrils of Adam as he was given a soul in the image and likeness of God, before your parents or your grandparents or their grandparents, before anything that happened that, would have, that you were even an idea yet, before the creation itself, God knows everything about you. That means that God knows the tone of your skin. He knows the number of hairs on your head and has known from eternity past. He has known the family that you would be born into and what your family has experienced. He has known the time and the circumstances of your life. He has known that in 2020, the world would be on fire around us, that we'd be facing global pandemic and and protests and riots in every state of our nation that have extended globally. He knows the struggles of your heart. He knows the shadow areas in your heart that not even you want to touch. He knows the ache of your soul when you're in sorrow. He knows the search you have for meaning and purpose and a place in this world. He knows the heartbreak you have experienced now and the heartbreak and the sorrow that's going to come. He knows everything about you. And that's not the full extent of what it means with his foreknowledge here. Because it's not just that God has like a a cosmic telescope through history that is able to zero in on every one of our lives to know us personally. It is true that that it is true that he knows every one of us, but it's more personal than that. Throughout scripture, and especially in the Old Testament, to know someone had a different connotation. We know that, right? That if somebody says to you, well... He knew her in the biblical sense. (laughs) We know that that doesn't just mean that he knew her name. There's connotations to it. It's entering into an intimate relationship with someone. To know someone throughout Scripture, the way that this language is used here is to love them. And so do you hear this? For those who love God and are called according to his purpose, he has loved you from before the foundations of the earth. Yes, he knows everything about you. And he loves you. His transformative power is not in fear of punishment. It's in his love for you. John tells us this in 1 John 4, that he's trying to help us understand the love of God and its implications for us. And so he says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. So why are we lovers of God in verse 28? Because he foreknew you. In love, he has pursued you. And his love for you is what has transformed you 
to love. And like Jesus, not not keeping this to just loving God, John extends it then and gets practical and says, we love because he's first loved us. And by the way, if anyone says he loves God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And so God's love for us in his foreknowledge transforms us, anyone who has come to Christ, so that we will respond in love. That's the first chain, the first link in the chain. The second, he predestined. I know some of you just got antsy. (laughs) You sat up in your chair. Sit back. Couch is comfortable. (laughs) This is the second link in the chain, but listen to God's word here. Romans 8, 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. It's almost like Paul knew that this was the link of the chain that you'd have a problem with, because it's the only one that he gives an explanation for. And so let's talk about this. People have an issue with this because, because, for a few reasons. First of all, there's a theological debate between Calvinism and Arminianism. If you aren't familiar with that debate, that's okay, because it's referring to a debate from 1618 and 19 at the Synods of Dort. Um, If you don't know what that is, fine, that's okay. It was between followers of John Calvin, who was dead, and followers of Jacob Arminius, who was dead. And the Reformed Church was splitting because these followers had taken their, their founders' beliefs and brought even more extreme versions of them. The church was at risk of splitting, so they had these synods, came out the canons of Dort, to, to clarify what Reformed theology believes about how we are saved. But the bottom line comes down to how much we emphasize God's sovereignty versus our free will. And the reality is, for most of us, that it's not that this is such a theological debate that we've spent so much time researching and studying the pages of Scripture. It's that, at its core, most of us don't want anybody to be an authority over us. We don't want anybody to tell us yes or no. We don't want anybody to hear that anybody has directed our paths anywhere, even if it's to good places. We want credit for that. When it goes bad, we want to say, why'd you do that, Lord? And when it goes well, we want to say, thank you. Now, Within this, I think most of us hear the first part. We say, yes, I want to be loved by God in a transformative way, but I would like to maintain my independence to reject him when I'd like to. So, lest we get too bogged down in theological debates, let the text speak. Let God's word speak. When we have trouble with something that is clear in God's word, and we say, ah, it's a hard passage, but it's not hard because it's mysterious. There are passages that are difficult to understand, and it's hard to break down, and the interpretation is difficult, and it could go any number of directions. That's true. Often when we say, ah, it's a hard passage, it's because we don't like it. And so let the text speak. We submit ourselves to God's word above all else, and let that shape our theology And every system of theology at some point, when you allow it to lock itself down too tightly, will come to a point where it's in conflict with a portion of God's word. And so, if we're told that God's purpose for our good is that we are predestined, then praise God for it. Let's celebrate it. And so let's talk about what it means and what it is specific to here in this text. 
Now, what this does not do is remove human responsibility. We've seen this throughout Romans, right? That we, have already, we walked through all the things we know. We know that if you're irreligious, that you're going to have to stand before God. We know that if you're religious, then God's word exposes you. We know that every one of us is incapable on our own of pleasing God. We've seen all of this throughout Romans. So we are fully responsible before God for ourselves. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility and freedom are not in conflict biblically. So don't let our theological systems create a conflict that is not a conflict in Scripture, but is a tension to be maintained. Now, within that, predestination here is very specific. What are we predestined to? To be conformed to the image of his son. Why, Paul? In order that, this is the purpose, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And so God has loved those who follow him from eternity past, from before the foundation of the earth. He foreknew you and predestined that you would be shaped to become more like Jesus. That that's your destination. And we've seen this in Romans as well. Remember, we are either in Adam or in Christ. There's no other category. We don't, like, we don't shuffle back and forth. You're either in Adam, sinners by nature and by choice, headed for death and dust like Adam, or you're in Christ, the heavenly man, renewed, restored, being shaped in his image and likeness to life eternally. This is, these are our options. And so we're, we're being conformed and molded that way. We're going to see that in chapter 12 when we get there. When, he, when Paul says, clearly, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Like we are being pressed into a different mold in Jesus than this world has to offer us. And we're told that we're adopted as children of God. And so in Romans 8, 17, we are guaranteed an inheritance with Christ, but do you remember the qualifier? Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And so, what are we predestined to? We are predestined. That means we, there is a previously determined destination that you are headed toward. Saying there's something on the horizon that you are moving toward and it is pre previously determined. And if you are headed toward the destination of the glory of Christ then we are told over and over in Scripture that that means that you will also share in his suffering. That if you're going to share in his inheritance in the, with the saints in the kingdom of light, saved from the kingdom of darkness and the power of sin, then we need to realize that the only pathway to, on, the, on the road to the glory of Christ is to go through suffering and death because that is the pathway that Christ himself took. And so it shouldn't surprise us when, we say, when Paul says, all of creation is groaning, longing for the day of its redemption. We are groaning inwardly as for our adoption as sons. And, and we don't, suffering knocks us off kilter. We don't even, we're too weak to even know what to say in prayer. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. And, and in the midst of that, for him to say, now listen, he brings us back to the bedrock. We know that God is working all things for good. How do we know it? He's loved you since before the world began. And he's already set your destination. If the destination's secure, then 
why are we cared about, why do we, why do we care about the road that gets us there? Wherever that road takes me, if I know it's ending in the glory of the inheritance of Christ, then Lord, take me down your road. And so we can look at the groaning of creation. We can look at the wickedness of humanity. We can look at our own pain and suffering and see that it's the result of evil, that the world, the flesh, and the devil are conspired against us to steal our joy and kill and destroy us. And also, simultaneously, God uses those things for our good to shape us in the image and likeness of Christ and burn off the temporal and weak desires of our hearts so that we can focus on what really matters. But again, don't get this twisted up. Remember Joseph's story in Egypt. You go read the end of Genesis. Joseph, man, that guy went through the ringer. He was, he was, his death was faked. They ripped up his colorful coat because they thought his dad was too, liked him too much. A little sibling rivalry. And, his son, and so they, they faked his death and killed an animal and spread it over his coat and put him in a pit. And then they sold him into slavery. He got sold off and ended up in Egypt. Man was high character and rose to prominence in Potiphar's household. And then what happened? Potiphar's wife was trying to make a move on Joseph, and when he wouldn't, help, when he wouldn't do what she wanted, she grabbed a hold of his cloak, and he was like, you can have it, and ran. And then she framed him for trying to rape her. So Joseph gets thrown in jail, where he interprets a friend's dream and says, hey, when you get to the Pharaoh, remember me. The guy says, yeah, 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 I got you. Two years later, Joseph is still sitting in prison, and Pharaoh has a crazy dream about skinny cows and fat cows, and, and he's like, I don't know what's going on, and, and this guy goes, oh, there was this guy Joseph. Two years ago, he interpreted a dream for me, and so he pulls him out, and God ends up using all of those things to provide food for Joseph's family to preserve the seed of Abraham, to preserve the seed of Isaac and Jacob and the 12 sons that would become the 12 tribes of Israel because Joseph was wise enough to save up grain for a coming famine. Now, does that mean God intended for Joseph to be forgotten in prison for two years? I don't know that we can say that theologically, but what we can say is that the evil things that happened to Joseph were used by God, not just for Joseph's good, but for the good of everyone else around him. And so we can see there what, it, what this means, that all things are going to work together for your good. We don't know how it's going to work out. You might never see it in its fullness like Joseph got to, but your destination is secure, so we have nothing to worry about. And, and if Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection and of our salvation, then we're told here that he, he's looking for, for a big household of brothers and sisters and siblings to have around him. Now, we, we see this in Hebrews chapter 2. I love Hebrews chapter 2 because of the portrait that it gives us, and this just speaks to my heart so deeply when I'm in my own, dealing with my own doubt and shame and insecurity. We read there, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, you hear that? This is Jesus. He's the one for whom and by whom everything exists. But in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Christ was made perfect in suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call you his brother, to call you his sister. He's not ashamed of you, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. 
God has loved you from before the foundations of the earth. He has set your destination in Christ. And Jesus is not ashamed to call you a brother or a sister. He is singing your name in the midst of the people of God. This is what predestination means. Predestination is not fire insurance for pseudo-believers. It is not once saved, always saved, so I'm going to go and live like it doesn't matter anymore. Predestination is, is God's grace to us to reshape us into the image and likeness of Christ in order that we can be delivered safely to the end because we, this is God's purpose for us that, that Christ is just the firstborn of a huge family. A family that spans all people, all languages, all tribes, all nations. Every person on earth made in the image and likeness of God is invited into this. But some of us, we are told that it is secured for us. And this can give us confidence that if Christ has gone before us in suffering and he is singing your name in the midst of his people, that he is not ashamed of you but delights in you, and that it shows us how great his love is. And so first, God foreknew. Second, God predestined. Third, God called. Those whom he predestined, he called. Do you notice that it doesn't say that this, this isn't like a funnel? It, it makes it clear every time, in case, lest we make this something that Paul's not saying, he makes it clear here, okay, this is, this is everyone who loves God, is, is um, that, that we are being, in verse 28, we are called according to his purpose. So, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined them. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's the same group of people through all five. It doesn't change. But this is the center link on the chain. And this was already mentioned at 828, that called according to his purpose. And so this question comes up because this is where we get to the effectual calling of God and the work of the Spirit in our lives and how do we know how to wrestle through those things theologically. I think for most of us, though, again, it's not a heady theological question. For most of us, this is a very practical question that stems from our own insecurity. If it is God's sovereignty and salvation that brings me to himself, that he foreknew and predestined me, then how do I know if he called me? How can I be sure? We have, like, Paul in Romans 7. We have moments where we say, like, I don't do the things I want to do. I do the things I don't want to do. There's this war within me. I don't know if, that, I don't know if it's real enough in me. I don't know if I'm sanctified enough to, be, to have this spoken about me. How do we know if we, are, if we have been summoned by the Almighty God into a relationship with him? But I don't think we're without help on this either. Paul, writing to the Thessalonian church, a church that he helped start, and to people that he knew and he loved, he wrote in 1 Thessalonians, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. This is the same language of called. It's the same wording here. How does Paul know that these people have been called by God? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Paul says confidently to the people in Thessalonica, we know that God called you. How do we know? Because when the gospel was preached, you believed it. 
The Holy Spirit moved in your heart. How do we, how do we know if the Holy Spirit moved in our heart? Like, some of you have grown up with all kinds of teaching on that. that some, for some of you, you grew up being taught and it being drilled into you. Well, you can be saved and believed, but it's, it's not yet the Spirit coming on you. Because when the Holy Spirit comes on you, then there's going to be certain signs and it's going to look a certain way. And if that hasn't happened yet, then you don't have the Spirit of God within you. That stands in the face of the truth of the New Testament. Do you remember what we read early in Romans 8? If you're in Christ, the Spirit of God dwells within you. The only normative gift that the people of God are given, the only one that every Christian has, is love. That's what 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 tells us. Every one of us is loved by God so that we can love. And then Paul says, listen, it's one spirit, but it's different gifts for everybody. And you are given gifts not to show off your connectedness to his spirit, but to edify and build up the body of Christ. And so that's what you're gifted for. And so if you want to know what your spiritual gifts are, start serving the church and trying to invest in and build up others. And the spirit will empower you and equip you for the task. Now, the spirit's normative work in everyone you want to know if the Spirit of God has been at work within you, and you know what it's going to look like. You'll be convicted of your own sin. You'll come in desperation, knowing that you need a Savior. And you'll trust that Christ's work on the cross is sufficient to accomplish the task. If that has happened, and you've turned in belief and repentance to Jesus, then that is the work of the Spirit of God within you, because it's not something that you could ever believe on your own. And so how do we know if we're called? How do you know if your destination has been set? How do you know if God has loved you and, and entered into an intimate relationship with you from before the foundations of the earth? When the gospel is preached, you turn and embrace Christ. And so when your heart is awakened by the voice of God through the Spirit of God to the love of Christ and you're called to be his own, then, then when we, we're going to sing this today, but when we sing together, we can say with confidence, from my mother's womb you have chosen me. Love has called my name. I've been born again into your family and your blood th- flows through my veins. That's what it means to be predestined and called and foreknown is that God loves us and has saved us. Now, there's times when people will hold up a false dichotomy and say that if you believe in God's sovereignty and salvation, then that means that you won't have a passion for evangelism. Real quickly, I just need to expose this straw man for what it is. An illustration that I have gone back to over and over again for years, I'm sure I heard it somewhere, so it's probably not original to me. I don't claim, I, if I say too much that's original, it'll probably be in heresy. It's been the same message for 2,000 years, let's be real. Now, if I was to go out, even, even at the ages my kids are at now, if I was to go out into Lincoln Park in a socially distanced way and put out a whole bunch of plastic Easter eggs and say to my kids, hey, some of these eggs are going to be empty. There's nothing in them. But some of the Easter eggs are going to be filled with your favorite candy. There's, there's a reward there. And I'm guaranteeing to you as your dad that some of them are set up for you. My kids aren't going to hear that and go, not every egg? Nah, pass. Now, kids hear that and they go, wait, there's a guarantee that there's candy. Like, you, you couldn't hold them back. 
They'd be hitting each other trying to get to the next egg. They'd be hiding eggs so that people don't know how many eggs they have. I mean, I've watched this happen every Easter morning with my children. They get up early and try to scout out where all the eggs are so that when we say, okay, it's an egg hunt, then they're like, okay, bop, 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 bop. <laughs> and so, so I know that that's the case. And, and so if we actually believe that God is sovereign in calling people to himself for salvation, And yes, we are responsible, and yes, we have freedom, but if God has loved you from before eternity passed and destined previously your destination and has called you to himself, then we are going to respond. If you know that and you're a Christian, then evangelism becomes the best thing in the world because if somebody rejects you, you can say, that's not on me. It's not because I messed up the gospel. But, if, but you are guaranteed that in proclaiming the good news of Christ that God will save some. And so it's the greatest motivator I can think of to actually be bold enough to, to, to tell people what you believe. The fourth link in the chain, God justified. This has been the primary theme throughout Romans. That is why I'm not going to spend a ton of time on it here today, because we've been talking about this since January. And before that, and before that, and before that. The primary theme of Romans 1 to 4 especially is it is one big, massive argument that we are justified. That means that in God's courtroom, when we face him in judgment, religious or irreligious, that we will either stand, if we stand in our own righteousness, self-justified, then we will be exposed that we are not righteous at all. But what has been given to us in Christ is that by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, we are given the fullness of the righteousness of Christ and declared righteous in God's sight. That is justification. And so it makes sense then that, that this is the next link in the chain, that if you are loved by God in foreknowledge, if, you are, if, you are, if your destination is secure, you're predestined to be conformed into the image of the Son. If you are called by God, then of course... In order to come into his presence, you've got to be justified. Now, it doesn't mention our faith here. In Romans 1 to 4, it talks a lot about faith. That we're not justified by works of the law, but only through faith. But I think that's because here, Paul is explicitly showing us in Romans 8. Romans 8 just explodes with, with the spirit of God and the comfort of salvation and the comfort of God's work. And what he's showing us here is that it's God's work and God's purpose and God's love so that those things can wash over us and the, because the focus is not on us. Don't you remember the immediate context here is when we hit suffering and look at the brokenness of creation around us, we don't even know how to pray. If Paul had put here, justified by faith, we'd have an excuse to say, I don't know if my faith is good enough to have earned justification. He doesn't leave us with that excuse. It is all on God. These are God's purposes. This is, we know that everything is working for our good for those who are called according to his purpose. Why? Because he foreknew and predestined and he called and he justified. And all of that is brought to bear in his gift to us of the righteousness of Christ in which we now stand. Fifth, and finally, God glorified. God's plan climaxes in our glorification. So our eyes now are focused on heaven. 
that, and, and on the new heavens and new earth, that, that we are promised that we will have new bodies like Christ's resurrected body, that in, in the new heavens and the new earth, there, are, there is no darkness, there is no shame, there is no shadow, there is no more guilt, there is no more suffering, there is no more uncertainty or insecurity or doubt or fear. We are freed from all of that. But I want you to notice one thing here. This is in the past tense. Every one of them. Now, up until this point, we get that, right? Okay, he foreknew. Well, yeah, that has to be past tense. He predestined. Well, I get why that's past tense. Maybe you've accepted it today. He called. Well, if you're a Christian, you would look at that as a past tense. If you're not a Christian, then if you come to Christ, you might begin to look at it that way. But no, this is saying even before the foundations of the earth, he called you. It's whenever the Spirit opens you to hear his voice. He justified. Well, we can say that's past tense because it was accomplished in the cross of Christ, which was almost 2,000 years ago. So that was past tense, that he justified us in Christ. But glorified? It's future, right? So why is it in the past? Because it's not a question. It is no less secure than the fact that God loved you from eternity past and foreknowing. It is no less secure than predestined, that he predestined you. It is no less secure than that he called you. It is no less secure than that you were justified in the moment Christ was killed in your place for your sin. It's no less secure than the moment that Christ was raised on Sunday from death to life, conquering death for you. It's no less secure than Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father. It's no less secure than him saying that he is returning soon. And so these things are secure. And so God's timeline, I mean, this is what we need to hear. The, the, our glorification is part of this chain that nothing can break. And, and the same ones are carried by God through the end. And so God's purpose with us is certain, it is secure, it is locked in forever. Some call this the perseverance of the saints, or you could call it the preservation of the saints. That God will preserve us, and that, that the cross of Christ is that powerful. The love of the Father is that secure. The work of his Spirit is that transformative for us. And so God's timeline sweeps from eternity past to eternity future as the timeline laid out for us. It's like he's laying out a map for the journey for us on a table today, and it's made plain and clear that the life that we are living now and that we work so hard in, that we put so much stock in, the circumstances around us that are so crushing or so, so exhilarating that, that it, the things that we find hope in, the anxieties that we wrestle through, even as we suffer, we forget that all of this life is a vapor. It's a mist. And it's preparing us for eternity and glory. Life does not end in death if you are in Christ. That is the pathway through a veil to when true life begins. And so we are glorified and so how do we make sense of all this? Real briefly, this is beautiful theology that I hope is lifting your heart today. But it's not just heady theology. It means something for us. Now, John Wesley, who was decidedly not a Calvinist, decidedly on the free will discussion of this argument, that he is, I mean, Wesleyanism is named for the man. But Wesley, in his sermon on these verses, closed it. His closing statement was, what is it then that we learn from this whole account? He spent his whole thing, by the way, saying, you know, Peter says that Paul writes some things that are hard to understand, and this is one of them. I'm like, oh, John, it's not that hard. 
But listen to what he says. What do we learn from this whole account? It is this and no more. God knows all believers, wills that they should be saved from sin. To that end justifies them, sanctifies them, and takes them to glory. Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and that they would be content with this plain account of it and not endeavor to wade into those mysteries which are too deep for angels to fathom. What does Wesley say about Romans 8, 28 to 30? Praise God. This should draw our hearts to worship. That he knows he saves, he justifies, he glorifies. And when he calls you to himself, it's secure. And so, what this means for us is first, if you feel deep despair over your sin and you realize that you need a savior, thank God for that. Turn to Christ, he will save you. The golden chain cannot be broken. Second, for those of you who are in Christ, live in freedom. Your salvation and your eternity and your glory are secure and they are dependent not on you, they are dependent solely on God. And so that's why when we look at the history of the black church, there's this beautiful example of dancing in sorrow and rejoicing in suffering and, and yes, to lament, but never without hope because we know the destination we're headed for. We know the light on the horizon. We know the glory that's to come. And so we march on till victory is won but it's already been secured in the cross. That means the fullness of our lives and of human history has been put on display for us in Christ and in the gospel, and God's love for you is greater than any circumstance that you will ever experience. And this is what that means, is that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, the world around us is a mess, and if you're anything like me, you've been just living the news cycle. Every day, having things that are just, it's like, how many more hits can we take? And we are not created with the capacity for the breadth of suffering that we are experiencing right now. We're not created with the capacity to be crushed by things happening in other cities to people that we have never known. But it gets us. It destroys us. Because we're seeing the breakdown and the groaning of all of creation. The systems of our world have always demanded total allegiance to be fit into their categories and molds and to be conformed into their image and likeness and to be, or to be marginalized or dismissed or to, in today's terms to be canceled. The gospel of Jesus Christ breaks all of that down because he has broken down dividing walls of hostilities and he's given us hope that there's something bigger in all of this. And so we can turn to him and find hope and freedom and life. One of my favorite theologians is Charles Octavius Booth. Charles Octavius Booth was born in, I think, 1845. He was born into slavery in Alabama. He became a church planter and had a passion for educating black people, former slaves. He ended up planting churches throughout the South and ended up in Detroit eventually at his death in 1921, I believe. But he wrote a book called Plain Theology for Plain People. Charles Octavius Booth planted the church in Montgomery, Alabama that would end up becoming the place that Dr. King took on as a pastorate. And this man, in his, in his book, simple book, Plain Theology for Plain People, he said this about this passage. The object of God's electing grace 
will not be fully attained until those that the Father has given to the Son have been gathered into the bright mansions that have been prepared for them. Those that are the objects of God's preserving care can never fail to reach the desired end. For through the means which the loving, that loving care provides, they patiently persevere until they inherit the kingdom and enter into the royal mansions prepared for them in heaven. Hence, in the midst of the trials of life, when passing through the valley of the shadow of death, they may sing joyfully. So whatever we walk through here, God will work it out for our good in the end. He will preserve you. That's what helps us persevere. He foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he glorified. Thanks be to God. Lord, would you help us to see clearly what you've given us in the gift of this text? Would you help us to trust in our hearts that your word is true? Would you lift us in the midst of a world that's collapsing around us and help us to see through the answers that are provided for us so that we can put them in right perspective on what you've given us that describes all of human history in this world itself? Would you help us to trust and rest that you really are working out all things for the good of those who love you and the fact that we love you is evidence of, of your Spirit's work within us? Would you help us to find a soft pillow in the beauty of the doctrines of grace in this golden chain that you foreknew and loved us, that you have set our destination, that you have called us, that you have justified us in Christ, and that you have already guaranteed that we will be glorified. And would you free us to live in light of that glory, even in the midst of the kingdoms of darkness. And so we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.